two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Well, hello and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am Claude Call. And I'm Sean Gallagher. And we're in part two of our look at the movies written by Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin Fest. Yes, which is in line with his new movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which has been in theaters since mid-September or so and hits Netflix on October 16th. And today we're going to be looking at the first two movies that he wrote after his weakest project, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, was canceled. And those movies are Charlie Wilson's War and The Social Network, the latter of which won him an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. And without further ado, Claude's going to tell us the story of Charlie Wilson's War. Well, it is the 1980s, and Tom Hanks is playing Congressman Charlie Wilson, who teams up with CIA agent Gust uh, Avrakotos and socialite Joanne Herring, played by, respectively by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julia Roberts. The three of them cook up a means to boost uh, funding for Afghan freedom fighters in their war against the Soviet Union. The film opens with Wilson receiving a commendation, but he quick, it quickly switches over to a flashback. Uh, Wilson is portrayed as more of a party guard than a congressman, which eventually brings about a federal investigation that ultimately results in no charges against him. Joanne Herring persuades Wilson to do more to help the Afghan people, and so he visits the Pakistani leadership and they convince him that the U.S. could be doing a lot more to help the Afghans fight off the invading Soviets. Wilson, in turn, finds himself frustrated by the fact that the CIA wants to keep all of their support efforts to be low-key. Wilson returns to the U.S. and he meets with Avrakados and their efforts to get funding to the Afghans leads the Soviets into a quagmire of a war and his activities wind up becoming part of the Reagan Doctrine, which was dedicated to supporting anti-communism efforts worldwide. When the Soviet Union finally withdraws, uh, Avrakados tries to uh, persuade Wilson to find money for post-occupation Afghanistan to include things like rehabilitating schools. Unfortunately, he meets with very little support in Congress. Ultimately, Wilson is commended for his support of clandestine services, but we can also see that he is afraid of the implications of what basically amounts to a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Okay, now this movie was somewhat of a turning point for Sorkin in that from here on in, every movie that he's written has been explicitly based on a true story. You know, A Few Good Men was inspired by a a true incident. Malice, I think, is uh, somewhat inspired by a true incident. And The American President, while not inspired by, was loosely inspired by Woodrow Wilson trying to go on a date while he's in the White House. But Everything else he's done here on in has been explicitly based on a true story. And in addition to that, the movies he did from Charlie Wilson's War On are all based on books that were written about the subject. Charlie Wilson's War is based on a book by CBS correspondent George Creel, 
Um, we don't know explicitly if Trial of the Chicago 7 is based on a book, though I'm sure Sorkin read a lot during research. And all of these movies are or are told in or contain flashbacks. And uh, although Charlie Wilson's Warden start out that way, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but we talk about Sorkin a lot as far as his dialogue goes and his characterizations, but his structure is something that we shouldn't ignore either. And each of these movies, particularly The Social Network, but even Charlie Wilson's War, can be talked about pretty easily in terms of how he structured them. And one of the ways in Charlie Wilson's War is the way he uses, Sorkin uses names from the period. You know, for example, when Charlie and his aide, Bonnie Bach, who's played very well by Amy Adams, are walking out to the House of Representatives before he's set to vote on a ridiculously inconsequential uh, bill involving the Boy Scouts. He's um, met by an aide of Tip O'Neill's, who they never identify. They just say Tip, once you do. And they mention Jean Murtha. Now, Jean Murtha pays off later because he ends up taking over the committee that is funding this uh, covert act to help help the Afghans out in the war. And it's because of the vote Charlie, because of the way Charlie speaks up on his behalf here, that Mirtha, even though he takes over the committee from Doc Long, who's played by Ned Betty in the film, because Charlie spoke up to him, Mirtha will continue the funding. However, Mirtha at the time, and they don't really discuss this. They just say he's under investigation, but he was on investigation because he was part of Abscam, which is the uh, thing where uh, congressmen were bribed. Uh, the Arabs. By, yeah, by, well, people posing as Arabs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, Sorkin does that throughout the film, that he'll put these names in, but unlike a lot of biopics and docudramas, he doesn't explain who they are. He just expects you to figure out that they're important in some way. Another example is when Gust is meeting with his superior for the first time, he's played by John Slattery, who'd later become well-known on Mad Men. He mentions Papandreo wins the election if I don't ta- of the junta take him prisoner. That's referring to a that's referring to Greece when there was a coup d'etat in the late 60s. Costa Gavras made mention of it in his great movie Z. And then they also get into a discussion about Admiral Stansfield Turner, who was the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I believe, when uh, Carter was president. And again, though, there's no explaining who they are. You know, John Slattery's character does say at one point, you mean 
Admiral Stansfield Turner, but that's more of like, hey, show some respect rather than explain things. The only person in real life who Sorkin sort of makes a mention about is Rudy Giuliani, Mm -hmm. because he's the one who's leading the investigation of uh, Charlie into his uh, extracurricular activities, shall we say. Yeah, and and that's the interesting thing is in this particular case, I mean, Sorkin has you you've got to have a lot of stuff explained to you. You know, a lot of times he will just give you kind of an information dump, or he will have some character who will play the dumb guy, and then you just have to explain everything to that character. And in this case, Charlie Wilson is kind of an ignorant character who does have to have a lot of stuff explained to him. But he but Sorkin is definitely like kind of picked and chosen what really needs to be explained and what doesn't, because he needs you to get into the facts of what's going on over in Afghanistan and how they're going to get done, whatever they're going to get done, rather than, you know, dumping all this, this person is this thing, and this person is that person, and that person is that person. It's not necessarily germane to the story. And, And so it does help to move the story along a little bit better. Right. And talking about moving it around, um, this movie was directed by Mike Nichols. His and last it film turned out not? to be his last film, theatrical film, yes. Mm-hmm. And he is one of the giants, let's say, in the arts. You know, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but you know, he was on the forefront of sketch comedy. He was a major theater director. Um, in the 2000s, while his film career had sort of foundered, he adapted two plays to television, Wit and Angels in America, which are terrific. And the first four films he ever directed, uh, Who is Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The Graduate, Catch-22, which we might be doing in a future episode on carnal knowledge, are some of the best American movies ever made. Now, he, as I said, he had sort of founded in the 2000s, but his previous feature film, Closer, which also had Julia Roberts in it, was a return to form as far as I'm concerned. And he really makes this thing move uh, no better than in the scene where uh, Gust is at Charlie's office for the first time. You've got secretaries coming in and out telling Charlie that he's getting indicted and then Gust coming back in and they're talking about Afghanistan. And all of that could be farce were, were it not for the seriousness of the subject and yet Nichols deftly moves things around there. Yeah, with a lot of characters moving in and out of doors and, and that sort of thing. And that's really the farcical end of, of, of it. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing, it was, it was kind of funny was because there was one point where Charlie Wilson keeps calling for Gust and Gust comes right in. And at one point in watching that scene, I was thinking, well, why is he just able to shout? And be heard because shouldn't this be kind of a thick door? And it doesn't even occur to Wilson that this is happening. 
Yeah, the Swiss make an anti-aircraft gun called the Orlicon. Listen, Charlie, 20-millimeter cannon, high rate of fire. Uh, I know the Orlicon. Don't forget the limo driver. What do you mean? Oh, you took a limo from the casino or the airport, maybe. It's easy enough to track down the limo driver, and him a subpoena, ask him if anything was going on in the back seat. So, you know, in terms of cleaning up this... Were you listening at the door? I wasn't listening at the door. Were you standing at the goddamn door no. listening to me? How could he even... That's a thick door! You stood there and you listened to me? I wouldn't stand at the door. Don't be an idiot. I bugged the scotch bottle. What? Yeah, it's got a little transmitter on it. I got a little thing in my ear. Get past it. Don't believe this. Who the f***? Who the f*** are you? It's not in my ear right now. Take it easy. I was going to tell you about it, but I'd leave the room for a second because you were getting indicted. Oh, you're getting indicted. Is there a camera in here? Uh, it's a little paranoid. That's right. Will you take the bug off my scotch bottle now? I saw this movie twice in theaters, uh, once by myself and then once with my brother who was working in New York City at the time. And both times when we, when Charlie realizes that Gus has bugged his scotch bottle, the entire theater exploded <laughs> in laughter because it is just that well-written and just that well-directed and just that well-acted. And yeah, just and, timed. It was just so well-timed. Yes. And let's take a moment as well to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman here. Yes. 2007 was an amazing year for him. You know, he had not only this movie, which he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for, though he ended up losing, uh, but he also had Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and The Savages, which are two amazing films as well, and he was great in both of them. And you might think that his Oscar here, or his nomination here, was just a nomination for all three performances. But he is really that good in Charlie Wilson's War. From his very first appearance when he's yelling at uh, Cravely and uh, doing the classic Sorkin speech of listing his qualifications. Right, and and that's a spot where you do get exposition from a character, which is a little bit clunky, but it's also, yes, A, typical of Sorkin, and B, stuff you you do have to know. And C, I would argue, funny. Oh, yeah. Especially (laughs) since he ends it with another classic uh, Sorkin move, a reference to Gilbert and Sullivan, when he says, and I'm never, ever sick at sea, (laughs) which is from a song from uh, HMS Pinafore. And since uh, Mary Finn, someone who is in the Television Without Pity West Wing forums as a huge uh, Gilbert and Sullivan fan, we should sort of uh, give a tip of a hat to her. Since she was the one who first pointed it out to me, I just didn't know that that was a Gilbert and Sullivan reference. Yeah, it did seem kind of out of nowhere. And I, I was like, that has to be a reference to something, but I wasn't sure what. Another thing that I want to mention here um, maybe this is from reading uh, William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade too many times. But normally in a movie like this, where you have three stars playing the roles, that all the good lines are going to be given to stars. 
You know, that's something that William Goldman was very cynical about in his book. But Sorkin doesn't always do that. And we'll get more into that in The Social Network and in a couple other movies we cover. But um, one of my favorite lines in the movie comes from Zvi, the Mossad operative that uh, Charlie and Gus go to meet. And when he finds out that Charlie is being investigated for his uh, drinking and or his drug use, rather, and he says to Charlie, I love you, but you're a grown man who still hasn't learned to look both ways before crossing the bleeping street. Yeah. You know, that's really funny. And then uh, Shri Appleby, who plays the secretary known as Jailbait, um, when she goes to Charlie and tells him that the press have been asking why he's never gone to rehab. And she says something along the lines of, because they don't serve liquor there. Right. Now, I, so. I, now you've got me a little bit confused because I thought that jailbait was basically his term for all of the people who worked around him. And it, now, it if, seemed like when he hollered jailbait, they would all show up. No, because in the uh, on the IMDb page for Charlie Wilson's War, she is credited as jailbait. Everyone else gets a name or a function, but she's credited as jailbait. I know. I know. As a group in real life, they were called Charlie's Angels, right? And also the line that one of them has when um, Larry Little, the lobbyist played by Peter Garrity, is waiting in the reception area. Uh, and he comments on how all of them are incredibly good looking. And she says, the congressman has an expression. You can teach him the type, but you can't teach him to grow boobs. Or yeah. <laughs> That's not the line he uses. But anyway, uh, that is one of the things I remember from the book. It's been a while since I've read the book, but I do remember that distinctly. What I do remember, and I want to get into this a little now, is the draft of the script that I've, that I read, uh, there are quite a few differences between that draft and what's in the movie. There are a few scenes that are in the movie that were not in that script. For example, um, the, uh, scene that Joanne and Charlie have in her bathroom after they've had sex that whole scene was actually originally part of a longer scene between Charlie and Joanne when they're walking around the house. It was split up. And then also the scene where Gust takes Charlie to a uh, park in D.C. where the weapons expert, Mike Vickers, is playing chess with four people at a time. That was not in the original script. And that also allows uh, for Charlie to give one of my favorite lines when Gus tells them, see how good he is? He's playing chess all with four people all at once. And Charlie says, well, that's a useful skill if Afghanistan's ever invaded by Boris Spassky. Yeah. And then the scene where um, the actual whole sequence when Charlie and uh, Gust are on the 
uh, plane ride back home and Gus tells Charlie to do something about Joanne because he doesn't want this to become a religious war, at least as far as the U.S. is concerned. And then the whole dinner or luncheon that um, Joanne is hosting for President Zia of Pakistan, uh, who's played by the great Indian actor, Am Puri. Um, and he's very concerned about Pakistan and Israel being allies. And he said, in public, we have to appear to be enemies. And Charlie's like, yeah, I don't think that's going to be a tough sell. <laughs> um, none of that is in the original script. However, and they're all good scenes, I should add. However, in the original script. You're going to talk about the ending, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to talk about the ending. Although before that, I do want to mention that Joanne gets Charlie to come to her party to show him a movie that her friends have made about Afghanistan. And in the original script, we're actually supposed to be shown the movie. And it's really hard for good writers to write bad intentionally but Sorkin did it here. At the same time, though, I do understand why they cut it because it's really not necessary. Yeah. And then there's also a couple more scenes with Bonnie in the script. And then there's also another scene with Zvi before he goes to Pakistan. Uh, Charlie goes to Zvi and is upset with him about some kind of action that Israel took. And Zvi calls him out on the fact that he's only doing this because he has to go to Pakistan for something that he doesn't want to talk to Zvi about right away. Mm -hmm. But yes, the ending in the script was much different than it is in the movie. As a matter of fact, the movie itself wasn't supposed to be a flashback. It was supposed to start with Charlie on uh, Charlie in the hot tub with uh, Paul, the guy who's trying to pitch him the idea of a show like Dallas, but set in Washington <laughs> and not have the award ceremony there at all. And in the script, Gust goes even further in pushing Charlie about how if the U.S. pulls out without doing anything, that you know things are going to get bad. And Gust actually says to him in the script, "You're a variation or something along the lines of you're going to wish that the Soviet Union had actually successfully invaded Afghanistan if you don't do something about this." And the ending of the script is Charlie and his wife sitting at home in their apartment when they hear bombing. And it turns out it's September 11th. Now, both Tom Hanks and Mike Nichols apparently did not want to make things that explicit. And they thought it was going to be too much of a downer note. So they avoided having it end on 9-11. And I can understand that. But I do think that they sort of soft pedal 
the fact that the U.S. is somewhat culpable for what happened after um, the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan. And yes, we do get the scene where Charlie is trying to convince the congressman to fund Afghanistan for schools, not just for weapons. And they're like, Charlie, we don't want to hear about this. But nonetheless, I do think the movie does pull its punches. It, it does, but they they do draw a subtle little line. And I'm going to ask you if you noticed this in the theater. But in the scene right before Charlie is talking to the congressman, when he's talking to, to Gust, okay, and Gust is giving him the warning. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. There's one point where there's a pause in the conversation and you actually hear a plane fly by. And I wondered if that was something you could hear in the theater. Like how subtle was that? I have to confess. I didn't pick up on that fact. Uh, what I was picking up on was when there's the pause between Gus saying this and Charlie saying, you know what, this is all fine. I hadn't read the script at that point, mm -hmm. but, you know, I could sort of tell that, oh, there must have been something cut between those two moments because it felt very awkward. And I didn't pick up on the noise of the plane, and I did pick it up when I watched it on DVD. So, yes, that is pretty subtle, but nonetheless... I was a little upset about that. And then also another major change in from the script to the film is the Joanne Herring character uh, is more of a cheerleader, like a lot of women characters in Sorkin movies and Sorkin projects, unfortunately, tend to be. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, she's a little tougher you know, in the movie, she's the one who arranges for Doc Long to go to Afghanistan. And she's the one who tells him to make a speech when he's there, whereas in the script, it's Charlie. So that character was toughened up for the movie, which is good. Although what is not as good is... I think Julia Roberts is sort of flat in playing the character, to be quite honest, or at least she's flat with her sequences with Tom Hanks. When she's with Philip Seymour Hoffman, they're really good together. And when she's with Ned Beatty as Doc Long, she's very good. But otherwise, I was kind of disappointed by her performance, considering how good she was in Closer. Yeah, I, I, I actually agree with you on that. I think the only scene that I thought she was especially strong together with Hanks, okay, because she was, yeah, she was very good with Ned Beatty and she was very good with Hoffman. But but I think the best scene that she did would have been um, in that bathroom scene after they've had sex. And she, but but again, she's kind of rattling off your typical Sorkin speech where he's doing a lot of parallel construction. If this were a real war, a state would issue a white paper outlining the communist threat the way they did in El Salvador. If this were a real war, there'd be a national bipartisan commission on Afghanistan, headed by Henry Kissinger the way they did in Central America. If this were a real war, Congress would 
authorize $24 million for covert operations the way you did in Nicaragua, if this were a real war. I think that particular bit went very well, but it was also one of these things like it's almost impossible to do it badly because of how well it is written. But yeah, I, I, I agree. There were a couple of times I didn't quite buy her in this particular role. One thing I want to zero in on that scene as well. Mm -hmm. um, Nichols is, or he, at least he was sort of famous for encouraging actors to come up with their little bits of business and putting it in the scene. And I don't know if Robert's, you know, doing makeup with her eyes was something that he suggested or she suggested the way he's plucking at her eyebrows and eyelashes, but that's letting them do a little bit of business instead of just saying the lines. And normally watching women making themselves up is not something I'm very interested in, but here it does add to her performance. And there's another thing like that when Charlie is meeting with Larry Little, the lobbyist played by Peter Garrity. And if you'll notice, um, when Charlie is trying to make a point about how the crush that he's there about could be moved to any space, he puts his legs up and you see his cowboy boots mm -hmm. and Larry to sort of brush him off also puts his legs up and he's, you see his cowboy boots. So that's a nice little bit of business there. Yeah. I tend to think that they were both in some way, at least set up by Nichols. Um, especially in as much as again, back to the bathroom scene, it is, it is so well framed because of his use of multiple mirrors. It's not just one. You see like several different reflections going on in the shot. And so I think that, for her to be doing her eye makeup was part of the scene, you know, for her to be like, you know, separating her lashes with a safety pin. Oh, oh, oh no, no, get that away from me. <laughs> but, but, but I think that, I think that was something that she might've done on her own, but, but definitely just the way it was framed as far as the scene with, with, with Larry. Absolutely. Cause you had like these basically very carefully set up shots where, where Wilson's boots went up and then, Larry's boots went up in turn. It was it was just the the parallel action and just the way that they were framed had me saying, "Oh yeah, absolutely. This is this is something. This is a this is a director's choice, not a character like like not not an actor making a choice on behalf of his character." And credit should also go to uh, cinematographer Stephen Goldblatt, yes. who had also shot Wit and Angels in America. The way he staged that scene, the way he stages the office scene, um, matter of fact, the way he stages just about everything in the movie. And then, likewise, the way that the um, that the um, when we do see some snippet of the of the film. That it, the, the, just the, the quality of, of, of the film. And then we get also a lot of footage that is clearly done for the sake of this movie, but is meant to look like like archive footage or newsreel footage or, you know, something like that. We get like this very grainy images that are meant to look like some sort of low res image. But there was stuff that's in there that was clearly designed to be part of this film. Right. Now, one bit of trivia I want to mention before we move on to the next film, unless you have any further thoughts, is 
Uh, there is one actor who has appeared in previous Sorkin projects who has a small role here. Uh, Spencer Garrett is a character actor. Um, he plays one of the members of the Congressional Committee near the end. He also pops up in an episode of Sports Night. He's in the second season episode, and the crowd goes wild. He's the lawyer for the network. And then he's also part of the uh, a Democratic Party staff member in uh, West Wing second season episode, The Fall The Fall's Going to Kill You. Uh, he's the one meeting with uh, Sam. Right. I, I guess the only other thing I would note about this is, is that even though a lot of Sorkin's films are based on true stories, this one actually has a title card up front that says this is based on a true story, which is kind of unusual for him. Right. Although I was think that was probably done for legal reasons. Yeah, it's possible. It is. Why don't we take a quick break and we will be right back. Okay, so the uh, next movie we're going to talk about is the next movie uh, Sorkin wrote after this, which is The Social Network, which is based on a book called Accidental Billionaires by Ben Mesrich. And Claude is going to give us the summary. Yeah, you took the first line of my summary, but that's okay. So this is a nonlinear story that tells us about the origins of Facebook through a series of flashbacks to and from a pair of lawsuits that were filed against Mark Zuckerberg, who is played here by Jesse Eisenberg. One lawsuit is coming from the company's former chief financial officer, Eduardo Saverin, played by Andrew Garfield. And the other is coming from the twins, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, who claim to have come up with the original idea for the website. The Winklevoss twins are played by Army Hammer with the help of some special effects. In short, Zuckerberg is dumped by his girlfriend Erica in a bar. When he returns to his Harvard dorm, he opens up his live journal blog and he writes an insulting blog post about her. That same evening, he creates a website called FaceMash, which is so popular that it crashes some of the servers at Harvard within just a few hours. The resulting notoriety gets the attention of the Winklevoss twins and their business partner Divya Narenda, and they invite him to work on a dating website called Harvard Connection. Now, instead of working on Harvard Connection, Zuckerberg approaches his friend Eduardo with his idea for a site called The Facebook, all one word, which is more broadly social in its nature. Saverin provides the seed funding for the website, which becomes popular very quickly. As the Facebook grows, the twins become aware of it and attempt to convince others that Zuckerberg stole their idea, but nobody seems to care. Later on, they learn that Facebook has expanded to Europe and they finally decide to file a lawsuit. Now, Zuckerberg and Saverin meet up with Napster founder Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake, and he convinces Zuckerberg that the Facebook could be a billion-dollar business. Saverin is less convinced of this and continues trying to monetize the site on a smaller scale. He eventually gets so tired of Parker making business decisions without him that he freezes the Facebook bank account. Shortly after this, on the day that Facebook reaches its one millionth visitor, Saverin learns that his Facebook shares have been badly diluted so that his prior 30% share is now worth one one thousandth that much and he files a suit of his own. At the end of the film, Zuckerberg is alone with one of his attorneys, Marilyn, who convinces him that he should settle the suits because some of the details of the company's founding, combined with Zuckerberg's rather callous attitude, will make him very unpopular with a jury. And we close on Zuckerberg alone in the conference room, where he locates his old girlfriend's profile and puts in a friend request and then refreshes the page repeatedly. When this movie was in development, 
Um, I was on the Television Without Pity movie forums, and there were, in essence, three questions that came up. One was, why do a movie about Facebook? It's just going to be a cash-in movie. Uh, Two, why is Aaron Sorkin writing this? Because he hates the internet. Now, we're not (laughs) going to get into that. We're not really going to get into that. But when we post this website, we'll post a link for anyone who doesn't know the story about Aaron Sorkin's uh, long somewhat tumultuous history with television without pity. And number three, why is David Fincher directing this? Isn't this just a Oscar bait or sellout movie? Oscar bait, by the way, is a term I really despise, (laughs) by the way. And I think as far as I'm concerned, the movie answered all of those questions that this wasn't just a uh, cash in job because it doesn't portray any of the people involved in the creation or supposed people involved in the creation of Facebook in an entirely flattering light. And it doesn't concentrate on the actual ins and outs of making a Facebook, just the decisions made behind it. And although there are a couple of lines that are in the movie that you can tell are Sorkin's way of being dismissive of the internet, especially when Erica, who's played by Rooney Mara, who would become a big star in her own later, tells Mark when they're in the bar and their final scene together, the internet's not written in pencil, it's written in ink. You know, that sort of sums up Sorkin's uh, feelings on it. And then as far as Fincher goes, this can sort of be seen as a companion to Fight Club where you have, again, a portrait of alpha male behavior, except this time it's the words they say rather than the violence that they use. Yeah, and, and, and um, one, of, one of the things that um, Sorkin himself has said is that he wasn't going with a whole lot of fidelity to the story itself of how Facebook was founded, okay? He wanted to tell a good story. So there are going to be a lot of times where what happens in the film isn't necessarily what happened as far as the story behind Facebook. You can't take this film as a documentary in in that sense because he's looking to serve the story rather than the characters or the 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 real people who who appear in this in this particular film. Well, and that's also signaled at the end in the last scene between Marilyn Delpy, who's played by Rashida Jones, and Mark, when he says to her, I'm not a bad guy. And she says, I know, I figure um, 85% of testimony in these types of things is exaggeration. And Mark says the other 15% perjury. Yes, But now, speaking, getting um, into another thing here, you know, we talk again about structure here, the way the movie moves between 
the um, depositions that Mark is doing, uh, first with uh, Eduardo Saverin and then with the Winkelvai, as the Mark derisively calls them at one point, and then what each of them say might have happened. You know, this movie really illustrates something that uh, Don Henley, who Sorkin is a fan of, as we know, from the West Wing, uh, once sang in a song he did called Long Way Home. There's three sides to every story. There's yours and mine and the cold hard truth. And the movie is basically asking you to decide which is the cold hard truth about all of these stories. But again, the way it flashes from one story to another, to the deposition, to the story, to another deposition, to the story, is all very deftly handled by David Fincher and the two people who worked as editors on the movie. It is, and you're not necessarily expected to believe that we are going into any particular viewpoint when we go from the deposition back into the story. And once in a while, we go from one deposition to another as well. So we're really getting jumbled there as far as, okay, they're telling their story. This guy's telling his story. The other person's telling their story. And then there's what happens in the past. And But none of it is being framed as, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy. Right, yeah. No one comes off particularly well. And that is also from scene to scene, including what is probably my favorite scene in the entire movie is when the Winklevi go and plead their case to the president of Harvard at the time, Larry Summers, who's played by Douglas Urbanski, who's better known as Gary Oldman's manager and also a Republican talk show host. And despite that, uh, Sorkin happens to be friends of his in real life. And Fincher is also. As a matter of fact, Fincher was the one who suggested Urbanski for the role when a lot of other names were being bandied about, including Alfred Molina, who, don't get me wrong, would have killed the role, especially in the sequence when uh, the Winklevi are first telling him why they're here about how they feel Zuckerberg stole their site and how the Harvard handbook says, oh, you shouldn't do this. And he turns to his secretary and says, and, yes, sir, punch me in the face. That's and, a very Sorkin line. Yes. But that whole sequence, you know, you've got two competing points of view here and you're not expected to pick a side or either side could be right. On the one hand, you know, Summers is right that they are rather entitled, the Winklevi coming in here and asking him to make a ruling on what is basically theft. You know, that's not what his office is there for. And, you know, who knew that Facebook at the time would take off like he like it did? So he would have had to be very prescient to uh, say, OK, maybe we should do something about it. But on the other hand, he was very dismissive to something that they had worked very hard on and felt that they were being screwed over on. 
Yeah, so maybe. You, but but here's the other thing is, is based on what I have seen, real life Larry Summers is about the only person connected to this film who had no real complaints about the way he was portrayed. Like going back to his memory of his meeting with the twins and, and basically, you know, he, he's got this thing where you kind of gauge people when they first come through the door. And um, he basically kind of gave as good as he was getting. And, and so, you know, it might not have been like precisely what he said or precisely the way he said it, that kind of thing. But, but basically he was like, yeah, that's pretty much, you know, that was my attitude. Right. I took this attitude and, and I, I, I presented it in thus and such a way. And so, you know, everybody else is like, well, there were like all kinds of liberties taken. And I think Zuckerberg has said the only thing that was accurate was my clothing. You know, <laughs> like, you know, everybody else seems to have had some kind of thing to say about it. Even even Saverin, who like apparently like had something to do with the initial formation of this idea and then kind of shut up about it. You know, Summers seems to be like the only person who says, yep, that's pretty much the way it went down. On the other hand, I mean, he was the U.S. Treasury Secretary during Clinton, and he's the one who pushed hard for Glass-Steagall to be repealed, Mm -hmm. which uh, led to a huge mess in real life. So, you know, maybe he feels that way because he still thinks he was in the right. So I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, um, you are correct in that, you know, I'm not a big fan of Ben Meserich's book because I think it's really smug, hmm. you know, that he loves to indulge in the bad behavior that the characters were getting into. And I think Sorkin removes that smug tone which is one of the reasons why I love the movie so much. But the, that scene I do remember with Larry Summers is pretty much true to what was in the book as well. The only thing that spices it up are the, the Anne punched me in the face line. And then also when he says something about how the – how the Winklevi and Zuckerberg have a contract with the university and not with each other. And one of them says, I'm sorry, President Summers, I have no, I do not understand what you mean there. And Summers says, I'm devastated by that. (laughs) That's the Sorkin line there too. But everything there is pretty much true to uh, Summers, uh, to uh, Mesrich's book. Now, Now, if I recall correctly, Sorkin and Mesrich were working more or less concurrently, were they not? Yes. Not not in the um, way that, that say, like Arthur C. Clarke was working with um, Kubrick on 2001. It was like Mesrich was doing some pages and he would send them to Sorkin and Sorkin would write some more movie. Yes, that's correct. But as I said, I think Sorkin does a better job in the movie than Mesrich did with the book. That's fair. Now, um, one other, well, a couple things I want to mention. First, a little trivia note. I don't know if this was by design or by chance, but if you notice, a lot of the people in the movie 
or a lot of the actors in the movie, especially ones who are playing the kind of people of privilege that um, Mark Zuckerberg, in the movie anyway, wants to get into, but is sort of isolated from, they're all played by people who are from pretty famous families. You know, Army Hammer, of course, is the great-grandson of Armand Hammer, the oil magnate. Mm -hmm. Rooney Mara belongs to the Mara dynasty that owns or owned the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New York Giants at one point. And um, Rashida Jones, who plays the lawyer, Marilyn Delpy, she is the daughter of the great musician and producer Quincy Jones. And Dakota Johnson, who we see briefly in that scene in Stanford as the girl who slept with or on Sean Parker, as the movie uh, says that she's the daughter of Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. And as a matter of fact, we're recording this episode on the date of her birthday, ah, which good. is kind of appropriate. And, oh, the guy who plays Divya Narendra, um, he's played by Max Minghella, who is the son of the late great filmmaker Anthony Minghella. There you go. Yeah, I think that was mostly coincidence. <laughs> yeah, but still, it does lend a, ni- a nice resonance to the movie. Let, let me let me let me give you something else though with that anniversary thing you just mentioned about the birthday. Right? Is is here? Here is another. It's just a weird coincidence. But the day that we're recording this, okay. Almost exactly one year ago, I was in that bar that they used in the opening scene. Ah. I was I was attending a um, I was attending an educational podcast uh, conference, and uh, the last night of the conference, we all went over to the Thirsty Scholar, and I can tell you that it is definitely the exterior of the bar that they used to photograph. It is not the interior of the bar. Okay, the bar looks a little bit different on the inside, but we we can be forgiving in that respect. And I will tell you something else is is similarly. You know, because of that conference, I was all over the Harvard campus because of the the, the different conference um, segments taking place in different places. So some of it was at BU, uh, Boston University. Some of it was at Harvard. Some of it was in uh, at WBUR Studios. It was just many, many different places. And so as I'm watching these scenes with Zuckerberg and other characters running around the campus, I'm saying, this doesn't look familiar. This doesn't, I don't remember this building. I don't, re- and then I caught a building that looked very familiar. And I said, wait a minute, this isn't Harvard at all. Because I no. because Harvard, since Love Story, really, Harvard hardly ever gives filming permits to, to movie productions because Love Story did so much damage. And I was like, why does that building look familiar? And then I realized I drive past it every single day when I'm going to and from work. It is Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. <laughs> Yes, um, they did have to film a lot of the movie in Johns Hopkins because they couldn't get permission to film in Harvard. But Mm -hmm. that's the type of thing that I don't really pick up on unless it's really obvious. So it didn't bother me at all. Um, One thing I do want to get to as well is the fact that, again... Sorkin is very casual about 
uh, dropping information that he expects you to either pick up on later, you know, after you've seen the movie or um, while you're watching it. When um, Divya at one of the depositions mentions the fact that uh, Mark Zuckerberg had become the biggest thing on campus, even though the campus includes a lot of uh, a lot of notables, including the Vinkovai, who were who were rowing champions. He also mentions and one movie star. And Zuckerberg's lawyer says, who's the movie star? And Divya is like, does it matter? The movie star is I, Natalie Portman. I knew that she, one. <laughs> yeah, she uh, apparently, because she went to Harvard, she introduced Sorkin to a lot of people from Harvard who gave him insights. I'm guessing that the scene of the three lies where uh, Saverin is punching for, I think it's the Phoenix, the finals club that he's trying to get into. Right. And they have him and a bunch of other guys stand up against a uh, statue that's supposedly of John Harvard, which is why it's called the Statue of the Three Lies. I'm guessing she was the one who gave him information about that, that it's not really John Harvard. Right. And if I remember correctly, there was also a, a version of the story where um, where they're still doing the face mash thing and Natalie Portman's name actually comes up and they decided to cut it out. Yes. Although it's not in the original script, which this time I actually read the script before the movie uh, came out, which is why when everyone was complaining about, oh, this is going to stink you know, this, you know, um, I said, you know what? This guy has, at least if you go by the script, has great potential. And the script, by the way, is 168 pages long. Now, if you know anything about movies, you know that the length of the movie is generally compatible to the length of the script. And if they had done it, um, in a slow way, with everyone talking in a slower way, it might have lasted two hours and 48 minutes. But David Fincher had everyone speaking rapid fire, really quickly. And he filmed just about all the script, and the movie is only two hours long. There's a couple of lines of dialogue that are tweaked here and there. And also the major change is the script was R-rated, but the studio wanted a PG-13 movie. So they had to cut out a lot of uses of the F word. When Mark is sitting in the computer class and a girl passes a note to him after the whole face mash episode... On the note, it says, you dick. Right. In the script, it said something else. But uh, the studio pressured Fincher and Sorkin to change it. Sorkin, by the way, according to the DVD commentary, was against that particular change because he wanted something strong that would make Zuckerberg want to leave the room. But he was overruled. Other than that, Everything else, and, you know, as I said, a couple lines of dialogue are tweaked here and there. 
everything that's in the script, every scene that's in the script is actually in the movie. The only significant change as far as the dialogue goes is after Eduardo storms out of the Facebook party before the party at the house where Sean Parker and everyone else gets busted at, um, it's made explicit that the uh, intern who hands marked the cards at the end is under 21. Whereas in the movie, they don't say that. No, so it, that- but it becomes, it becomes, I think, part of the party scene also, though. And, and, and that's also a place where they had to work a little bit to keep the PG rating because you did have that scene in the upstairs room where people are snorting cocaine off the body of one of the girls. And so it was first like she's got to keep her bra on. And then the other thing is if you look carefully, they've edited it so that you never actually see the action of snorting cocaine off her body. You'll see them put the bot, the, the putting the cocaine down. You'll see a head go down, but you won't see the actual snorting action take place. But right. But right that after PG they're busted. 13, by the way. Right, right, right. Um, but but also in, in that same scene where the cop is asking how old are how old are you? And it's 21, 21, 21. I'm sorry, I lied. And she has to admit that she's under 21. Right. And I'm guessing also um, we should talk about the cinematography here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Cronenweth uh, did the cinematography. He also shot Fight Club. And I'm guessing that they also... Um, digitally made the lights much darker than they might have been ordinarily so that you couldn't really tell either that people were uh, snorting cocaine off that young woman's body. And in general, the lighting is much darker here than it has been in any movie version of any Sorkin script. And I think that's to the movie's credit, not that it inflates the subject matter in any way. As Fincher said in, the, uh, D- in his DVD commentary in the movie, you know, this movie is really about who gets the extra million dollars as far as he was concerned. But I think it does indicate the darkness of many of the characters here. Right. And, 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 and again, I don't think they force the issue on you for the most part. You know, the dorm room is going to be kind of dark. The bar is going to be kind of dark. There's a scene where they're in a, uh, a dance club. It's going to be dark. You know, you, you don't have too many scenes where they have to somehow artificially darken the space. I mean, yeah, they probably do just for the sake of, of making it look darker after they've shot it. But but the fact is, most of it takes place in a very organic fashion. Right. But again, that contributes to character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sorkin, we think of when he's writing his TV shows and many of his other scripts that he's writing these idealistic characters you know they may be flawed but they're trying to be good this and steve jobs which we'll be talking about on another episode next time 
next time is uh, these are movies where he's dealing with people who he's not necessarily trying to bring the best out of, even though at the end he wants you to at least feel a little empathy for them. Like the last line that Marilyn has to Mark at the end. You're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. Right. Right. So I think that was uh, very well handled. And we should also bring up the music, which is by uh, Nine Inch Nails had Trent Reznor and his one of the other members, consistent members of the band, Atticus Ross. Now, I read somewhere that when Reznor was first approached to do this score for this movie, he actually wanted to write a more traditional score because he thought that would be much more challenging because this isn't the first time he scored a movie. He also scored Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers. So I think he wanted to move a little away from that, but Fincher talked to him into doing um, something more like what ends up in the movie, which is very moody and atmospheric and fits with, and because it's electronic, fits in not only with the fact that this is about um, guys creating a computer website, but it also fits with the moody tone of the, that, he sets up so well. Right. It's actually, it, it's mostly electronic because we, we should note that the, there's mu- music playing during the opening credits. It's definitely piano, but we also get to hear it a couple of more times. And this is something that David Bowie did when he recorded um, Heroes, the same kind of thing. What, what they do is he recorded the piano close up, okay? And then the second time you hear it, the piano is further away. And so they have to use a, 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 a technique called gating, to make sure that it is audible, but what it also does is it makes it a little bit more echoey and sounding distant and that kind of thing because you have to play louder. And the third time, the piano is even further away, and now another gate has to be used in order to bring that sound up to a level where the the recording device can hear it. And Bowie did the same thing with Heroes. He recorded from six inches away, then from six feet away, then from 20 feet away. And so if you hear each time he sings a verse of the song, he's getting a little bit louder, a little bit more strident. And at the same time, he's not necessarily louder on the record, but you can definitely hear he's shouting at the end. But the fact is he has to in order to be heard. And Reznor does pretty much the same thing with the piano here, where he plays it from a little bit further away. So it gets a little bit more distant, a little bit more weird and echoey and, and that kind of thing. But every single time you hear that, that's piano. It's not, it's not an electronic device. Well, at the same time, though, when the piano pauses, you hear this sort of dissonant sound. And that is definitely electronic oh yeah yeah uh, yeah absolutely absolutely and we should also mention that the title of that piece is called hand covers bruise and i know one of the the place that it plays at the end is when eduardo finds out that he's been totally shut out of the company 
and then also it, the middle part is when um, Zuckerberg is with the lawyer who's deposing him on behalf of the Vinkovi, and he gives that speech about that people that he's really paying attention to the people working on Facebook, which no one else in this room, including your clients, is capable of doing. And that piece originally wasn't going to be in the movie. The, uh, this is the only other significant change from the script. Originally, in the opening credits, Sorkin wanted Paul Young's version of Love of the Common People to play over it. And Fincher was, and that, the lyrics are definitely way on the nose, but Sorkin in the DVD commentary said that he wanted that energy to contrast to Sorkin's, to uh, Zuckerberg's anger as he's walking back to his dorm room. Whereas Fincher thought the lyrics were too on the nose and he wanted Elvis Costello's Beyond Belief, which is from his album Imperial Bedroom to play until someone kept pointing out to him, you know, that's from your generation. That's not from Zuckerberg's generation. Right. And in the end, he went with the compromised choice of uh, Reznor's music, which I think is the right choice. And although there are a lot of songs that are played in the movie, the only one that sticks out, which I do think is appropriate, is the song that plays over the end credits, or the first part of the end credits, which is the Beatles song, uh, Baby, You're a Rich Man. Yes. That's a perfect way to uh, sum up the movie, I think. You know, especially in as much as when you first hear it, you think you think the movie's over, basically. You're ready to, you know, if you're watching at home, you're ready to like, you know, hit the hit the stop button or, or whatever it's going to do. And it turns out that you're gonna we're still gonna be with you for another minute or so before we go into credits. So, you know, so we've got the music playing, and I'm thinking it's gonna fade out at this point, and it turns out not to, because now we get the scene with him finding um Erica's profile with him clicking on the friend request, which is kind of interesting because you think like Zuckerberg, like, you know, he owns the whole thing. He could just easily bang right into her, right into her uh, profile. But, you know, he's a courteous guy, I guess. And uh, but then like just constantly refreshing over and over again to see if she has accepted the request. So you you still get all of that. Um, over the Beatles music before it finally goes to black and we see credits. And we also get the um, summary of where are they now? Well, yeah. That's uh, shown. And uh, by the way, I want to mention the names of the editors, uh, Kirk Baxter, Kirk Baxter and Angus Wall, who do such a job, such a great job of, making the deposition scenes and the story scenes cut back and forth so well. And I also want to give uh, great credit to Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, I don't know what you may remember from his career at this point, although this isn't the first fast-talking character he's played, most of the characters he had played up to that point were pretty nice guys who maybe get sometimes learned, lured into doing bad things, but in general were pretty nice guys or pretty shy people. 
you know, in movies like The Squid and the Whale and Adventureland. This is the first time that he plays a real jerk. And Fincher said that he cast Eisenberg in this part specifically because he wanted to cast him against type like that. And he does a terrific job of that. I'll say that he he generally does a good job. There are times, and and I, I, I saw a comment about this elsewhere. There are times when, you know, I'm a special education teacher during the week. And there were times when I was like watching this guy and I'm like, it's almost like he's playing him like, like he has autism. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on there. It's like, are they suggesting that, that Zuckerberg has a little, you know, touch of the autism going on here? And as it happens, I saw somewhere else that um, Temple Grandin, who is a very famous person with autism, had seen the film and said, yeah, this he looks like they're they're portraying him as somebody with uh, Asperger's syndrome. Right. Yeah. But, no, but it does do. but that doesn't always hold. It it, it holds in most of the storyline scenes, but not necessarily in the uh in the deposition scenes. Well, you would think that in those scenes, you know, he's very focused. I mean, you know, he is looking out the window, but that's a way of being focused to present his arrogance at, or actually not his, well, his arrogance are viewed one way or his, why are you people wasting my time telling me that I, as he puts it to Marilyn at one point, that you're telling, you're saying that because I made a chair and you made a chair that somehow I stole your idea. Yeah, so and, he's but, very focused there. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing is is you know yes you do get those occasional moments of hyper focus in in people with autism, but but he was also being just a little more snide. He was being a little more clever with with some of the things that he had to say. So there was the bit about him checking the math and and, and things like that, and just yes. the, just those some of those things where he where he just comes back at people who are talking to him. Um, you know, whether I'm giving you my full attention, I, we talked about that briefly before. That is definitely a better focused, a, a, a person who is just a little bit more in the moment than you get in some of the other scenes in, in the flashbacks. Right. And although David Fincher is someone who is known for wanting the, wanting the actors to stick to the script... He did allow the actors to come up with some little bits of business as well. The fact that Zuckerberg, during his depositions, is doodling on a piece of paper and he actually puts it up to show you that he's doodling at one point, that apparently was Jesse Eisenberg's idea. And then in one of the flashbacks, when they're at the Jewish fraternity and Eduardo sees Mark... And he does this perfectly awful white guy dance yes. <laughs> as he's walking over to him. Andrew Garfield came up with that mm-hmm. on the, like the second or third take that they shy. And Fincher said on the commentary that when he and the other um, editors and crew members were watching that, they all said that was the moment they knew that Garfield was going to go on the bigger and better things, (laughs) which he has. And he's very good, too. He auditioned for Mark Zuckerberg, actually, but uh, Fincher said to him that 
he had more of an emotional quality to him that was not so much for Zuckerberg, but was perfect for Eduardo. And it is, you know, especially when he, at the very, in the climax of the movie, when he finds out he's been screwed over and he marches in and slams Zuckerberg's laptop down on the ground and he says, do I have your attention now or something like that? Right, right, right. And another credit we need to give to the uh, technical people is just how well they do in making you believe that um, that the Vinkelvi are actual twins. You know, Josh Pence who we see very briefly in the bar scene after Mark and uh, Eduardo have had sex in the bathroom with their dates. He's the one who tries to go into the bathroom and they have to tell him, "Uh, sorry, um, there's a couple women freshening up on him. He was actually in all the scenes with Army Hammer but they just superimposed Army Hammer's face over him. I can't remember. I think he was Tyler, and Army Hammer was Cameron in all the scenes. I think and they just right superimposed that. the face. And see, and that for me was kind of uh, unnecessary special effects. I mean, I, I, and as it was, like I was watching this with my daughter, you know, over over the weekend doing the rewatch, and and. You know, she had basically caught on to the whole body double thing with the, you know, the the clever camera angles and that kind of thing. And I don't know, I, I it, it just seemed to me like kind of a pointless use of 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 the special effect. And 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 I know that you know that's kind of Fincher's thing. He likes to be like the technologically savvy guy. And I, I don't know if I'm necessarily buying that he couldn't find like a genuine pair of twins who could play the role. Well, 6'5", 220 pounds, you know, actors in Hollywood, they don't tend to be tall. That's true. So it's, so you have to remember that's what he's casting for, not just the fact that they're twins. They're also twin athletes. They row crew, as uh, – as they, as gets pointed out so many times. Now, one thing though that we might want to mention as well about that digital fakery there is that they do work to make each twin distinctive in what their posture is and what they're doing on screen. You know, Josh Pence would be doing a lot of things like picking up a newspaper, leaning back, doing things with his hands that had to be replicated whenever Army Hammer was had to play that in another shot. But also the personalities of the two twins. You know, the fact that one of them is like, we need to sue Zuckerberg and we need to do it now. And the other one is like, no, I don't want to do it because we're gentlemen of Harvard. Right. And that's well done. Right. And and I'll, I'll give them this. I mean, and, and yes, they did go to to what they call like twin boot camp to to train, like how to act like twins, because there are certain things that they're going to do 
in in very similar ways. But yes, they they did also manage to find a way to distinguish themselves from one another. Now, the only bum casting note, even though he does a good job, is casting Max Mangala as the Indian uh, Divya Narendra. Uh, although he, I guess in real life, spoke in a American accent, you know, you couldn't get an Indian actor to play that role. Well, he was busy being the president of Pakistan, so. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway. But, but you know what? You're also talking about these, these movies are at least 10 years old at this point, okay? And, and so there really wasn't, Still, not yet that that push to cast people of of the appropriate, you know, really, uh, you know, gender identity or you know, sexual orientation or, you know, in this particular case, nationality. Yeah, but I mean, in this case, it does really stick out. But anyway, it does. But but it, you know, it, it just wasn't it wasn't at the top of really anybody's um, priorities. Okay, but. Um... One other thing I want to mention before we wrap up, mm-hmm. uh, one piece of music that was not written for the movie but is used very well is the piece from Pierre Gimp in the, I think it's in the Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. Um, it's the piece that's being played when uh, the Vinkovai are rowing at the regatta and they finish second to the Netherlands in a very tough and tight race. Yeah, I think we get to hear about how tight it was a couple of times there. (laughs) Yes, and uh, that also leads to one of my favorite uh, Divya lines when um, Cameron is complaining about that and he says, Cam, he's the president of a country smaller than Nantucket. (laughs) <laughs> Let it go. <laughs> so, oh, oh, in the Hall of the Mountain King, yes. Yeah. And then one other um, piece, which is the only Sorkin moment that really didn't do anything for me, other than the uh, line about the internet is written in the, isn't mm. written in crayon or pencil, it's written in ink is the scene where Divya first discovers that the Facebook is up when they have a Harvard singing group uh, singing the uh, all for one hit, I Swear, (laughs) which is not a a song I'm a particular fan of, but the whole line that one of the kids has in there about – about how, why are they singing this? And one of the women in there saying it's a love song. And he says a classic Sorkin line, good point because Cole Porter and Irving Berlin never wrote any love songs. That's Sorkin's uh, being out of touch again about popular culture, but it's a minor bit. So do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? No, other than that the Thirsty Scholar is a great place to get a martini, but the food is expansive. (laughs) Oh, and uh, one other bit of trivia we should mention. Um, And also should mention that Justin Timberlake, um, who I'm not a fan of as a singer, but I like as an actor, he's very good as Sean Parker. He did do a good job. I was was taken out for a moment. You know, I was like, is that... Okay, uh, you know, and, and then uh, and then I, I I went with it and I, I settled into it. He was good. And when he first comes 
into the restaurant where um, Mark, Eduardo, and Eduardo's girlfriend at the time are sitting. You know, he's very appropriate in trying to please her because she's the one who's not there to talk shop. And so it's very appropriate that he's trying to make her feel at ease and asking her what she wants to drink. And she says an apple teeny. And Zuckerberg, in the real Mark Zuckerberg, apparently arranged for a screening of all of his Facebook staff to see this. And after he, after that screening, the apple teeny became the official drink of choice for everyone working at Facebook. Well, specifically, I know this story, actually, and it was specifically because he had never heard of an apple teeny before. So he tried it and decided he liked it so much that it became the Facebook drink. Right. Now, we should uh, say, of course, that Charlie Wilson's War is streaming on the Peacock Network. Yes, it is. And um, the social network is streaming on Netflix. Yes, it is. If you don't carry either of those, they are available to rent or buy on most other streaming networks like Amazon and Google Play and uh, Apple TV. And next week, we're going to be doing part three of our Sorkin Fest. As we mentioned earlier, we'll be talking about Steve Jobs. And we'll also be getting to Sorkin's directorial debut, Molly's Game, which are the two previous films he did to Trial of the Chicago 7. Yes, and both of those films are available on Netflix, or you can rent or buy them through the usual channels. Yes, and... If you have a question or a comment, you can email us. The email address is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And you can find myself, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook. And you can find me, Claude Call, on the Twitter machine, at Claude Call. Or you can listen to my other podcast, How Good It Is, which you can find over at howgooditis.com. Okay, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to Anchor.fm slash Words and Movies and click on the support link. Who knows? Maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.